Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think today we're gonna learn a lot about data. So I think we without further ado, I wanna welcome to the shoot to the show today our guest Emil Ephraim. So welcome to the show, Emil. Thanks, Alejandro. Great to meet you. So how was it in life? Uh, being born and, and raised in Sweden? Yeah, it's great. So uh, so because you came to the valley uh, a little bit later. So um, so what was your story really before before you made it all the way here? What was um, what was life that like there? The culture there, because you know, as a European myself as well, is quite um is quite a culture shock coming here. Yeah. So you did you did a little bit of uh, after your studies, which uh, which you ended up in in 2007, right? So um so you did a little bit of um of um perhaps corporate, and then before you went at it as a as an entrepreneur. So so in university, I mean, before that, like when at what point did you get you know uh, this love for computers and technology. Yeah, so that, so that was always there, I think. Like growing up, it was of course video games, that was the kind of the key thing. And it was the classic geek, you know, when I wasn't reading fantasy books, I was playing role-playing games. And when I wasn't playing role-playing games, you know, I was playing video games, right? Like none of which would put me out into that nasty thing called sunlight, right? <laughs> so right, it's right. classic that type kid growing up, right? Um, and, and so then after a while, I just started becoming more and more interested in, you know, how those games were being built uh, rather than just playing them. And I was always kind of a like a mathy kid and interested in tinkering and kind of engineering-y type stuff. And what really made like the, the whole thing about software and computers was that I realized after a while that once you know how to program these things, you're you're only limited by your own imagination, right? And that I thought was pretty amazing because I was always interested in creating stuff, but I'm I'm really impractical with my hands, so I could never build stuff, and so I had I had an engineering mindset, but like I could never translate that into kind of any physical inventions, right? But of course, once you enter the, the virtual world, like cyberspace rather than meat space, is how we used to talk about it, right? Um, then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the, the possibilities were endless. Mm. And then, as an engineer, I think it's it's really all about problem solving. So how do you how do you how do you think about problems? 
Yeah, that's a good one, right? I mean, like, I think to me, one of the more interesting things about problem solving from an engineering perspective actually subsequently translates, I think, into entrepreneurship, although I didn't think about it at all that way. But I think it is an openness and a, and a willingness to fail, right? Which means that, like, once you understand that failure is just like you've tried something and you haven't yet found out the successful approach, right? That is what failure is, right? Then all of a sudden, you're willing to take a lot of risks. You're willing to open up your mind and really traverse the the, the problem-solving space in a creative fashion, which actually you know translates very well into entrepreneurship. So I think that's 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 an interesting uh, you know um, kind of synergy between the two. So so I see that before you went at it as um, as a founder yourself. You were first the um, the architect of uh, of wind, and then you were the CTO of, of wind again. So, um, so I guess the um, can you can you tell us about what was this experience? Because you did this before you went at it as a founder. So I want to kind of like understand what was the drive or the intention of uh, going into this couple of gigs, and what was your takeaways from those? Yeah, well, I, mean, I guess I'd I'd broaden it because I was never the kind of entrepreneur who would like have a, I don't know, like a lemonade stand, you know, and would always be selling stuff and things like that. That's kind of one classic type of entrepreneur, I think. Right. But but what I always did, though, even as a kid, is I always had projects, right? And so whether that project was, you know, to write a book or that project was to write like a like a school newspaper from scratch or you know, I created one of the early, you know, online internet games, like when the internet was really, really young and like in the early 90s, like we created this online text-based role-playing game. And I was like 14 at the time. And I learned a lot. And so, so I always had these kind of projects and they were typically not, well, they were never for profit, never, ever. Um, it was just because I wanted to create stuff, right? And then, you know, growing up, you know, I ended up doing a lot of programming, right? And then in, in Sweden at the time, we just talked about how we're both fellow Europeans. In, in Sweden at the time, we had mandatory military service uh, when, when, I, when I was uh, 18 or 19. And so, so all men had to enroll in that. And so I did that. And after I got out of my military service, it, it was like October or November or whatever. It was like late enough in the fall that I couldn't start college. And so I had basically a year when I was like, huh, now what am I going to do? Um, and so I ended up I studied philosophy or something. I took some like random classes, but then basically what I did was I spent my evenings and nights programming. And then just through a random thing, I, I bumped into like through a friend or a friend or something. Um, someone introduced me to this job, um, you know, at this small company, even though they didn't describe themselves as a small company, they used another term that I'd never heard of. They're a startup. Startup, I thought. Anyways, right, they seem to be doing interesting stuff technically. So I joined them and we ended up building out an enterprise content management system. And that was the first time that I ever got in touch with this whole kind of high growth, venture funded. They were angel and venture funded. This is like late 90s, early 2000s. And, um, and raised a total of probably $5 million or something like that. Um, and I ended up becoming the CTO. And that's actually where I ran into the problem, which meant made um, the, the small team that I was uh, embedded in, the, where we invented what now is Neo4j, the company that I'm the founder CEO of today. And we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. So, so I guess for, for this company that you were working at, uh, was it based out of, out of Sweden? Yeah, that was all in Sweden. 
and but I mean the concept of of startups. I mean now in in Europe is is quite green and you know, but it's it's starting to be developed and less monopolies on the four or five you know like uh, VCs that are there, just like uh, putting like funny price tags on on companies. I think that that's changing now, but yeah. but I guess like back in 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 early. 2000s or, or late 90s where, where you were like joining this company. I mean, it was almost non-existent, the concept yeah. of startups. Is that right? Yes. No, that, that is absolutely right. And of course, what ended up um, helping to popularize it was the IT bubble, right? And so this is the late 90s. And, you know, we had our own version. So whatever was going on in Silicon Valley, you know, here, here in Scandinavia. Um, and that ended up even getting mainstream press. And that is really when the, like, common people, common man, if you will, normal people started hearing about startups for the, for the first time. But, but by and large, it was a very, very immature space compared to, for sure, to what it is today. Mm. So, so let's say shift gears a little bit here and let's talk about your first company. I mean, it's like, kind of like nerve wracking, taking the leap of faith. So, so how did you incubate this idea? Like, what was that problem that you finally tackled and you said to yourself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this one out? Yeah, so, so I was working at this enterprise content management system company, right, here in, 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 in Sweden. And um, we were doing what we today would be, we, we would call the multi-tenant SaaS application, right? It was called ASP back then, Application Service Provider, which, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the, the more gray-beard in your audience, uh, you know, may, may have heard, may, may remember. Um, but it's basically what it was, it was like, a SaaS application, which was multi-tenant, so we had multiple customers all sharing a slice of the same system. And we were doing enterprise content management, which you could think of as a big file system on the web. So the pitch was that, you know, dear big company, you know, rather than storing your files on your local hard disk or on your some kind of shared hard disk, shared file server internally, you should upload it over the web, which was crazy enough in the early 2000s. But to, to our system, and then you're going to get all kinds of benefits. And for example, some of the things that we did, we were, were very media focused, right? So if you uploaded um, maybe some PDFs, maybe some photos, we would do crazy things like, and, and sit down when you hear this, we would not just show file names, but oh, we would show thumbnails of those files. And <laughs> yeah, I know, it's crazy right. stuff, right? Which yeah. of course today, it's like you put up like... Our phones do that today, right? Yeah, uh, but 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 actually, like in the early two thousands, that was like mind blowing to people. Uh, but we also did some actual what I even today think of some like actually cool stuff. So for example, we could search across all your content visually, right? So let's say that you're a marketing team at a at a big company and and you're you're upgrading your logo or like you're changing your logo. It would be very handy if you could then say, hey hey, give me all the assets that have all like th this version of, of the logo, right? And then whether that's, you know, embedded deeply into the PDF file or whether that's in a Word document or whether that's just like logo.jpg, right? Give me all that back. And we did that based on visual search, right? Not on the file name or anything like that, which, you know, 20 years ago, that was, that was pretty cool, right? Um, but what ended up happening, though, was that because we had to keep track of all these things that, hey, this file is embedded inside of this file, and this whole file then is also in this folder, which belongs to this folder, and a lot of that is how things are connected. It's not just the individual atoms, the individual files themselves, but it's 
you know, who they are related to and what they are related to. And so we ended up with a lot of data that was connected, right? And that, it turns out that you can store that in the standard stack at the time, which was, uh, you know, included a, a relational database. So this is an Oracle database or a Microsoft SQL Server or something like that. You can store how things are connected, connect the data in that, but it's kind of cumbersome and it's awkward. And I was the CTO, had, you know, 20 people or so working for me. And I noticed that half of my team spent the majority of their time just fighting against the relational database. And this was surprising to me because in all my previous experience, all my previous projects, the database had been an accelerator, right? Um, so it took us a while to figure that out. But ultimately, as we, as we double-clicked and, double and triple-clicked on that problem, we realized that the, the key friction point was that there was a mismatch in the shape of the data that we had, which was very connected, and the building blocks that were exposed to us by our standard data infrastructure, the relational database, right? So a little bit of a, you know, square peg, round hole thing going on here. And, and that's when we realized that, wait, what if we had a database that looked and felt exactly like the relational database, exactly like Oracle, but rather than having a tabular abstraction, right, because relational database works like Excel, rows and columns, right? Um, what if we had a network model instead so that everything could be modeled with the building blocks of just a node, which you can think of as a ring or circle, right, and relationships between them, just arrows connecting them, right? With those building blocks, you can model everything. And that was the spark. That was the initial thought that we had that, hey, that would be amazing. Um, and then we said, hey, you know what? Someone should build that. And we started looking around. We started not even Googling around. This is early days, right? We started Alta Vistaing around and oh, Yahooing around or, or, or whatever the, the, the search firms that were, were at the time. And, and when, right? you say, when you say we, uh, who, who is the we? Yeah, so this, this is the engineering, this is the technical team at that enterprise content management uh, company that I was working at uh, in, in, in Sweden. Um, and and, and so, we, so we didn't find anything. And then ultimately we said, ah, screw it. You know, how hard can it be? Let's just build it ourselves. It, it turns out, you know, 15 or so years later, it, it was pretty hard to build the database. <laughs> I know that right. now. It was really hard to build the, the technology. And it's also really hard to take a new type of database to the market. But luckily enough, I didn't know that back then. Uh, so we were young enough and naive enough to just, just say, screw it, let's build it. And that's what we did. Oh, my God, I love it. Have You uh, You know, it reminds me of, of the movie Risky Business. Have you seen it? No, I have not. Uh, it's the movie of, of Tom Cruise and... And at what point on the movie he says uh, that there's times in life that you need to say what the F and uh, basically what the F gives you opportunity and opportunity gives you freedom. So I guess you said what the F at that point. That I, I did. And by the way, I've always thought that in the inevitable movie about the database company, because we all know that database companies are the most interesting and sexy businesses out there. I always felt that I would be playing my my character would be played by either Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, so let's talk about the uh, the day where you finally say, "Hey, you know, we're gonna build a business say, around this thing. Leap of faith is in, and let's make it happen." Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So, so we then what ended up happening after we kind of got to that moment when we said, "Hey, let's build it," is that we did build it. It took us a, 
a long time, several years. That's one of the things about a database. It takes a while to build. Wow. But ultimately, we were successful, and we, we used it just internally because it, it, it was a competitive advantage, if you will. It made us build enterprise content management systems faster than anyone else in the market, or, sh or so we thought. Um, but we always felt that this was more generic, right? This is more widely applicable than just for our internal thing. Like if, if we had this problem, surely others would be too. And then we also had this fairly naive and simplistic, but I think a pretty powerful view on kind of the trends, which was if you imagine kind of a, a chart with like a y-axis and an x-axis, right? And the x-axis is time and the y-axis is, you know, how connected the world is. And then we said, look, if, if we're at, you know, just put, put ourselves right now at some arbitrary point, as time moves on, are we going to go up or down on that chart? And once you ask the question that way, of course, we're always going to go up, right? Because the world is just becoming increasingly connected. Well, because data models ultimately the real world, if the real world is becoming more connected, right, obviously data will become more connected. And this was our analysis pre-IoT, pre-social media, pre, you know, multiple cell phones and your watches being connected and all, all that, right? And so, so at that point we said, you know, you know, time is on our side, like we're on the right side of history kind of thing. Um, and so we felt like, hey, one day we're going to be able to open this up outside of our existing company. That time happened in 2007. And so in 2007, all of a sudden, people started talking about big data. People started talking about, you know, sorry, uh, Amazon published a research paper talking about how they had to invent their own invent their own database from scratch. And they didn't want to do that. Wait, hey guys, we want to sell books, but like we had to build our own database to cope with scale. Google said the same thing. All of a sudden, the discourse in what I call the alpha geek community, so the really, really early technology adopters, was that, hey, you know what? The relational database isn't the only type of database that we're going to be able to use ever. And so that's when we decided to, to actually, hey, you know what, let's take this, this piece of technology that we built internally and let's spin it out into a separate company. So then when you made that decision and uh, you were, okay, we're going to make this, this a business, what was the, um, the founding team that went at it with you? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, so when we invented it a few years earlier, it, there's three of us. There's my, myself, my co-founder, Johan, and my co-founder, Peter. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And there's the three of us that, that invented the model and like all that good stuff. Um, when we decided to spin it out and start a separate company uh, around it, it, I, it was just the two of us, myself and Johan, so we were two co-founders. And we ran it alone for, for, for a couple of years when we were fundraising. And then when we landed the first uh, uh, seed um, funding in, in 2009, we, we started hiring full-time people. So what was the, uh, was the profile of uh, Johan? I think he... His profile was engineering as well. So, yes. so typically, what they say is that you you want to go at it and 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 find a co-founder that has different skill sets. So, in this case, you guys had similar skill sets. Yes. So, exactly. so how did you guys go about that? Yeah, that's a good question, right? I, I think uh, I, I don't know if 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 that is the right advice to have different skill set. I think um, when you're doing something as deeply technical as a database. Is, it is really helpful if both of you, like if, if you're two co-founders, right? If both of you are, are, are deeply technical. Now, we had very complementary personalities, right? So he, Johan was always a great builder, right? And it was always, I was to, used to joke that his mentality was that when in doubt, code, 
Like he, when he woke every morning, he would just start coding. Like if, if there was nothing burning, like quite almost literally burning around him, he would start coding, right? And that is fantastic <laughs> because at any point in time, like the product always moved forward, which is yeah. so valuable in the early days. I'm much more of an extrovert, right? And so I would wake up and uh, even though I loved coding at the time and I, you know, I've been coding my entire life, right? I would also be out a lot, meeting with people, talking to potential users and, and so on and so forth. So I think we ended up with, with complementary personalities probably, which over time translated into complementary skill set. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting, Emil, because your background and being, uh, being an engineer, I mean, you, you are quite, a, quite the, uh, the star. You, I'm sure that when you go into a room, you light it up like a Christmas tree. So how has been for you going from like the engineering side to like the business side? Oh, it's been very, very easy, actually, because I, I was always curious about many different things, right? And so, for example, I, I studied economic history in college just because I was very curious about that. And, and so I've always been kind of cursed and blessed, I guess, with, with having a, like a broad range of, of interests. And I'm really, really happy that I got my spike, kind of the, the I guess you're talking about this T thing, right, where you want to be deep in one area and then broad in a bunch of others, right? And my spike is in, in deep, hardcore programming because it's very hard to become like in fact it's impossible to become world class at that without decades in the basement right and like i spent <laughs> i spent those decades in the basement oh and you know writing database kernels and writing linux you know drivers and telnet implementations all that stuff right which means that you know i can I'm pretty good technically, right? But then, you know, as as the company started growing and and really the the high order bits or the the more important problems to solve were non-technical. You know, at that point, I I always found it very intuitive to to figure that stuff out. And I don't think that you need a, an MBA to be able to sort that out. You can learn that on the job, especially in a technology startup. Really cool. So, so, I mean, when we're thinking about databases and what you guys have built, I think that monetization is a real pain to, to, to figure out in many, many instances. So I guess, how did you guys go about the business model and making money? Yeah, great question. So, so one of the things that we started out with was that um, I always felt that in order for us to really make this take off and become a, a really big business and have massive impact, um, uh, we, I felt that we really needed help on the marketing front because we had chosen to take on two almost impossible tasks, which is very stupid, but we didn't know any better. Um, and the first one was single-handedly write what's called an ACID-compliant transactional database. And there are only a very few, only a handful of companies in the world that have been able to pull this off, right? Um, and they're called you know, IBM DB2, Microsoft SQL Server, Oracle, and so on and so forth. So that's almost impossibly hard to do, to do technically. But the second thing that we took on was on the marketing side, which is we chose category creation as our go-to-market uh, um, go strategy. Um, and so what that means is that, so the name of our product is Neo4j, N-E-O, and then the number four in J, Neo4j. Um, and so category creation then is, Neo4j is an X. What is X? Right? Volvo is a car. So the category for Volvo is car, right? What is X for Neo4j? Well, it's a graph database. 
is what it's called. Um, and we were the first team that put those two words together, graph database. Graph as in social graph, for example, that Mark Zuckerberg talks, talks about. Um, and then database, we, we all know what database is, right? And since we, and that is ultimately one of the most rewarding, or at least, or maybe the most rewarding uh, go-to-market strategy that you can embark upon, because if you end up owning a category or becoming the leader in a in, in fast-growing category, you get disproportionately rewarded for it, right? Uh, but having said that, it's also really hard to pull off. And so what we decided to do then was that, hey, we need help here. And that help is not going to be from hundreds of millions of dollars of funding, at least not initially, but we're going to open source um, our, our, our product, which means that we're going to get this massive adoption through developers, which then will create, if if we build a good enough product, in, in fact, an amazing product that people love, we're going to get that viral word of mouth to spread. And that is how we're going to get the word out. So we, we very early on chose uh, this open source approach uh, to distribution. And that, I think, in turn leads us uh, to some interesting discussions around monetizations. But that does make does that make sense? Yeah, no, and and I, and I think that that approach is very interesting. I think that <clears throat> Facebook, Twitter, and and other companies, you know, like the way they opened up their APIs and and worked with developers, really helped them to to thrive as well. So from a distribution perspective, you're you're right on, and and that's really really intriguing. So so I guess at what point do you decide to come to San Francisco? Did you guys start the business in Sweden or? Was this in in San Francisco? Yeah, so we, we started in Sweden. Uh, so we we um, I, I guess formally formed the company in 07, raised a small seed round in 09. But it was really in 2011 that it started taking off, and that's that's when I moved to the Valley. Uh, that's when we raised our our Series A, uh, you know, an 11 million dollar Series A, um, and we we flipped the company to become a Delaware corporation. Um, even though we kept engineering in, in Sweden and, and, and Europe broadly, uh, we moved the headquarters to, to San Mateo, outside San Francisco. So why did you move? Um, because we felt that um, when you're doing such a deeply technical thing and you want to impact the world as much as we want to, we had very high ambitions even from, from in, the, in the early days, um, it just makes sense to be in the valley uh, because at the end of the day, it's the center of gravity for our industry. Um, and I have this strong belief that, you know, in, in this day and age, you can run a company from anywhere. You can run it from Sweden, you can run it from Spain, you can run it from Australia, right? And there are certainly successful examples of all of that. But the way that I think about, about it is that you should, it's, well, it's at least easier to be in the center of gravity for whatever industry you're in, right? If you're, I don't know, in finance, it's New York and London, probably. And if you're, you know, in fashion, it's, I don't know, Milan and New York. I don't know where the center of gravity for, for, for fashion is. That, that is not my area of expertise, let's say. But for technology, it certainly is the valley. And the way that I liken that with is that, you know, if you're at the center of the gravity, like everything is just going to become easier, right? It's like running uphill versus running downhill. You go through the same motions, but it just takes you further, Right. And that's why we ultimately why we chose to relocate to the valley. That's really interesting. You know, the other day, for example, I I went to give a guest lecture at the, at Wharton in in Philadelphia, and and one of the professors there uh, mentioned to me that that there was a study that came out that it said that by being in a major hub, your chances of success increase by 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 three. 
Oh, interesting. I actually didn't. I had not heard about that study, but that makes intuitive a lot of sense to me. And, and it certainly be amazingly helpful uh, to us to, to, to be in the valley and be tapped into that network, or as we like to call it, into that social graph. So one thing here that, uh, Emil, that, that I see left and right, because obviously I'm, I've been here for, for, I think, almost 12 years in, in New York City, but there's a lot of founders that I see trying to cross the Atlantic from Europe, uh, and because the problem that you have in, in Europe is is basically that the largest fund, you know, probably I, I can talk for Spain right now, is like 100 or 150 million maximum. So we're talking about like an early stage fund here in the U.S. So they cannot go or follow on past the Series A and really give you the money for Series B and beyond. So so that's a problem. So, so the main issue is that these guys are pushed to come to the U.S., to find a round of financing, and then they find themselves that either their corporate structure is already completely messed up by these unsophisticated people that invested in their business, or they are completely ignorant of the dynamics and the culture that they're going to face when coming here. So how was that process for you guys? It was actually very natural. Um, I've always been very value-oriented, even even as a kid, right, when I, when I ran that, you know, online game on the on the early you know, parts of the internet, right, in the, the 90s, right? I, I always started building out more relationships with people in, in the Valley for some, for some reason. And I was going there a lot in the early 2000s and, and so on and so forth. So I was always very Valley-oriented. And, and when we moved over there, uh, you know, and I moved there physically, I just, it was very easy for me to start forming those relationships, you know, face-to-face, -face, if you will. Um, so I never saw that as a, as a big problem. We also had a very authentic connection, you know, back home. So our engineering HQ, we kept our engineering HQ in, in Malmö, Sweden, uh, where, of course, since the co-founders were all Swedish, we could all very easily and, and authentically tap into that, to that market. So I actually never found it to be, to be a problem. So when you say that it was quite natural, what were the critical ingredients that made that shift natural for you? Well, I, that was my second time living in the U.S. I also lived in the U.S. Um, as a teenager, as an exchange student. So I, so I certainly think that was one part of it. Sweden is also a very Americanized country, right? So our cultures are, are very similar. And then I think also, I just think that you know, one of the things that now that we're a, you know, 250 plus organization, you know, spread across multiple continents, we talk a lot about kind of uh, differences in culture and countries and so on and so forth. And one of the things that is becoming abundantly clear after a while is that there's actually way more similarities between people hired in tech in the U.S. and in France and in Sweden and in Spain. Uh, they have much more in common across geographies than, you know, people hired in that work in tech versus non-tech in the same country, right? And so, so I think that all just helped that it was, it was really my, my group of people, my, it was a startup people, tech people. Um, and so I just think that made it all very natural and easy. So then, so then in this case, I mean, talking about fundraising like we were, I mean, a business like this probably requires a fair amount of capital to, to get things in the right yes. year. So how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, that's a good question. So we've raised, let's see, I think $160 million to date. We raised an $80 million round uh, last year. Uh, so I think it's, it, it's a total of about 160. 
So as you're, let's say, if we were to break down the 160 in the different financing milestones, what has been your experience or your takeaways as you were jumping from financing stage to financing stage? Yeah, so that's a great question. So look, what, what, I, what I find, you know, when you talk to, to other entrepreneurs, um, I don't know if this has been, been your experience, but my experience has been that there's frequently kind of one big question mark that is always one, maybe it's several sometimes, but usually it's like one big question mark that is the kind of the high order bit, if you will, for each startup when it comes to fundraising. Like, hey, you know what? I don't know about that team. Something is wrong about that team. Or maybe the uncertainty is like, hey, can they ever get that product to work? For us, that was very much the market. There was always, yeah, you know, love the team, or at least that's what they told me. <laughs> um, right. Love the deep technology, love the customer base, love XYZ. But like, what really is ultimately the size of the graph database market? That is always the question that we got asked, which is, by the way, very natural when you choose category creation. Like, you don't know ahead of time because you're not selling into an established market because you're creating it as you go along, right? You are Levi Strauss, who are just, you know, producing pants. No, we're producing this crazy new thing called jeans, right? And so you can't go to any analysts and ask what the size of the market is because you're inventing it as you go along, right? So it's very natural. Now, for us, you know, in series A, that is the big question in series B, that was the big question in series C, that was the big question. But that actually changed last year. When we were out to race our series E, there was no longer, I mean, there's some amount of discussion around it, but the dynamics had just changed. Because what happened in our space in the past couple of years is that we've gone from zero competition because we defined the category and we were pretty alone in the category into Amazon launching a graph database, Microsoft launching a graph database, Oracle launching a graph database, IBM launching a graph database, SAP launching a graph database. Basically, all the big enterprise software vendors are, have now launched competing products to us. And then you can look at that as like, and, and get scared. It's like, oh crap, like they're all coming for us, right? Um, and, and there's certainly some amount of that, but by far, it is a beneficial thing because um, at the end of the day, our biggest enemy is people's like unawareness about the fact that we don't, that we even exist. And when I say we, I don't mean specifically, specifically Neo4j, but even the concept, our category, graph databases. And a lot of people have problems that are caused by having connected data trapped in a database that isn't fit for that purpose. But they don't think of that, uh, the, the, their pain in those terms. They think that my fraud detection algorithms aren't good enough, my recommendation isn't good enough, or my database is slow, or my developers are stupid, you know, or something like that, right? But they don't think of the root cause. And that is what all these competitors, the Amazons and the Microsofts of the world, are, are helping us with. And, and look, I think that that reminds me of, uh, of what happened with Instacart. And I know it's a different segment and different industry, but it's kind of like the same idea. I think that competition is healthy. Like in the case of Instacart, I remember when uh, Amazon, you were talking about Amazon, acquired Whole Foods. And everyone was like, oh, Instacart is going to be bust as a result of this. And funny enough, that incentivized all the other local uh, supermarkets to really say, hey, we're missing the boat. We need to implement technology. Exactly. And the fastest way to do that was to go to Instacart. So the other actually actual thing happened when Instacart just like uh, skyrocketed. So 
really interesting that you say this. And and you were pointing to as well, Emil, as uh, uh, certain times where where you felt like being scared of these competitors. And and we know, uh, Emil, that that entrepreneurship is a tough journey. So I want to ask you here. What was or what has been so far in these 12 years of war? Because building a startup is going to war. What has been your dark, your darkest moment and how did you bounce uh, back out of it? Oh, that's a great question. Darkest moment. Uh, I think our, my, the, 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 the point where it felt the most hopeless was probably really, really early on. It was in, in 2009, uh, early 2009, um, when... We had been out fundraising for about a year um, and the first time got completely shot down by the financial crisis in, in, in fall of 2008. You know, we bounced back from that and got one of the best VCs in, in Europe to, to give us a term sheet. Um, and we, we ended up signing that and we got through all the motions, you know, post term sheet, which I think probably most of your listeners are familiar with, but all the due diligence, looking through our books, to a patent freedom to operate investigation, like all of that stuff, as well as translating the term sheet, in, the term sheet into uh, final legal documents. We got through all of that. And as you well know, the company pays for that. And we were completely, we were running on fumes. We had 18,000 Swedish kroner, which is about $2,000 left in the bank account, when finally we all agreed, yes, this is now signable. And that is when that firm told us, no, we're going to pull out. Uh, the, the, the GP, the, the partner who was leading the deal, had, had decided to leave the firm. And so they decided not to honor the term sheet. And at the time, I had six employees, including the, the two founders. And it was a week from payroll, um, and we had $2,000 in the bank account. That was probably when I was like, man, you know, I actually thought to myself, this is going to be a great story one day, you know, if we survive it. Yeah. And so, so then how did you survive? We hustled, man. <laughs> we hustled. <laughs> you know, that's what we do, right? No, so we ended up, um, so, you know, we were six people. Um, that, this, I got word on a Tuesday. Um, sat down with the team and just said, all right, guys, this sucks, but here's the deal. And therefore, like, I, I'm going to ask, I'm not going to tell, I'm going to ask you all for a favor to just go out and, and do consulting. And not even related to our product or anything, just go out to do any kind of software consulting. And happily, and I'm still today eternally grateful to them, all of them just said yes. Of course. I mean, that's not why I joined this company to do consulting, but but I'll do it because I, I believe in this in this idea so much. So on, on Wednesday, I had them all out with uh, with, with customers doing consulting. Um, on, on Thursday, I'd convinced those customers that I could send an invoice early. And I hope I'm not incriminating my, my myself here because I, I think what I then did was in, in, in the gray zones, because on Friday I, I took those invoices and I sold them to a factoring firm. And I, I think you're not really allowed to do that for consulting. I've now learned because I think you need to actually perform the work before you before you send an invoice. <laughs> <laughs> I think technically, but I think this is this is old enough that I'm hopefully not incriminating okay. myself. Right? Well, I'm sure and the so, statute of limitations has passed. And that's what I'm saying, right? Um, and so on. So on Friday, I, I sold those invoices to uh, to to a factoring firm. Got cash on on Monday and, and made payroll on Tuesday. Wow! 
Wow, that's unbelievable. Well, what a what a journey, what a journey, Emil. And and one thing that um, that I'm sure you're gonna be able to um, to really provide some some color here for for everyone that is listening is there's just like so much BS around AI. Everyone in their mother is saying that they're doing AI and machine learning and and data being the new oil. Where, where do you think you know things are really heading in in the space, Emil? Yeah. That's a great question. Look, and, and I, first of all, I, I really agree with you. I think there is a lot of BS going on. I, I mean, I guess a few years we were all talking about cloud washing, right? When like anyone and their mom would, would at least in the Valley, would you know, pitch a startup. They called it the cloud XYZ, right? And it was called cloud washing. And for sure, we have AI washing going on. Now, yeah. like whatever they do, it's like, no, it's not AI back this and that and or an ML back this and that. Right. And of course, I think you probably know the difference between AI, artificial intelligence and ML machine learning, which is that, you know, machine learning is written in Python and AI is written in PowerPoint. Right. And I think that that's just one of those things that uh, that I think ends up being true, especially in the valley when things are really hyped. Just everyone throws it in. Into their, in, into their pitch decks. Yeah. Having said that, I actually still believe that it is underhyped. I so actually still believe it is underhyped. I actually think that the impact of this, it is just by far the biggest we've ever seen in the, in, in, in the history of technology. Um, and I, I don't think I can emphasize that enough. We are looking at a completely new way of producing software, right? Where it used to be like what we've done to date is that we sit down and we we, we compute heuristics, right? And we, we try to articulate that ourselves, like by if this happened, then that, right? And now we can infer that based on patterns in data, right? And that I just think is the impact of that is going to be really, really, you know, even more significant than what, what people say today. So I'm actually a big believer in this. And, and I think there's a, there's a very authentic connection to what we do, because ultimately, like all these AI systems, they, they need context, right? And what is context? Context is how you relate to the world. It is, you know, my context is I was born in Sweden. I work for a company called Neo4j. I'm married to my wife, Madeline. I have three daughters. You know, that is all my context. That is what gives me color, right? And that's how I relate to the world. And that's all captured in, 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 in graph systems, in, in graphs, right? Which is ultimately what we do. And so I think it's a, it's a, it's a huge trend for software and technology. And, and it's, a, it's a trend that we are really, really uh, looking forward to participating in. Well, as a fan factor, I have three daughters as well. Uh, Emil, oh, there you so go. Probably we're going to have to, uh, we have a similar context and we may need to compare notes whenever the boyfriend starts showing up. I was so, going to uh, say, man, man, <laughs> once they all hit teenage years, that's going to be hectic. I think like this whole, I will probably look back on running a high growth startup as easy compared to managing three teenage daughters. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So so I guess in, in this, uh, you know, we're talking about trends and and where things are heading, where where do you see that the Neo4j is going to be when when you're able to fully realize what you guys are up to? Yeah, that's a great question, right? So so I don't consider myself a serial entrepreneur. Like I'm not in love with startups, you know, uh, as a concept. I'm in love with this startup. I think what we do is just amazingly interesting, and I think that we are do, doing something that is very foundational and very fundamental. I think 
connect the data is a fundamental piece of the data landscape. It's a, it's a central building block, and no one has done it well today. No one has done it well. Um, and so I think that if we work really hard and are really lucky, um, then I think that we have an opportunity to build a big independent company uh, around, around um, managing connected data. Um, and so that's absolutely the, the, the goal and the hope and the dream. I love it. So one question, Emil, that I always ask guests is, um, you know, you, you've been at it for, for over, over 12, 12 years now. I mean, you're full of uh, startup war scars, sort of saying. So, so if you had the opportunity to speak with your younger self, Emil, and give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Um, don't name your company uh, after basically a password. Don't put a number in the company name. Would be kind of one one thing, the M4J, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but that's probably tongue in cheek. Um, no, it's a it's a good question. I mean, I think that um, like a very early advice that I that I got from um, uh, my my COO who joined was a very experienced executive and joined me very early when we were just fourteen people. Um, he told me that this was pre the three daughters, pre kids, and he said. Dude, you need to get kids because you're working way too much. And and I was, I was like, it was 18, 20 hour days, six days a week, you know that kind of stuff, right? Um, and and that I think was very sound advice. And and I think that I've never agreed with the dichotomy of, you know, work smart or work hard. I think you need to work hard and smart. Um, but but having said that, I think it is it is helpful to take a step back you know, sometimes and, and, and breathe a little bit. Um, and, and then you're going to end up making smarter decisions. So I think that would be one piece of advice. I think the second one would be just the importance of communication and over communication. Like we, we are a highly distributed company. We, you know, we're 250 plus, soon 300 people uh, spread across many content continents, probably, 40% in North America, 40% in Europe, and 20% elsewhere, something like that. So many time zones, so many Slack messages, and, and making sure that everyone is on the same page. Uh, it's just becoming exponentially harder with, with distribution. So just the value of over-communicating and, and forming those authentic human relationships as much as possible through face-to-face, I think would be the other thing that I would emphasize to my to my younger self. And I know I cheated and gave two things when you asked for one, but hey, that's how it goes. Hey, we got the we got the bonus. We'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Emil, I guess for the um, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, it's probably on Twitter. So uh, my first name is E M I L, and my last name is Ephraim E I F R E M. But you can search for graph databases or. Neo4j and ML, and, and you'll find me. I'm very findable on the internet, but probably the, the easiest way is on Twitter. Amazing. Well, Emil, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Awesome. Thanks, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.